So he had never denied me. I was his child, and he, he just didn't want to be a father, and he had been very clear with my mother about that. My mother conceived me to try to trap him into marrying her. You, you have to have these trials and challenges in order to, to know what you're made of, to be able to have the opportunity to help others. My advice then is, you know, take the challenge. Believe that it's possible and you can do it. You'll find the resources. You'll find, you know, the friends, family. Are you feeling stuck, lost, tired, or uninspired? We've all been there, including myself. I'm Coach Des, mindset motivator and lifestyle entrepreneur. I'm here to tell you that the best, unapologetic, and limitless version of yourself is yet to come. The Born Unbreakable podcast is here to inspire just that. With motivating guests from all different walks of life and around the world, their stories will empower you to unlock abundance and your unbreakable spirit. Do you need accountability? Reach out to me for a free consultation of how I can support you in reaching your maximum potential. Hey there, Brawn Unbreakable listeners. There is something I really want to share with you. You've heard me talk about the benefits of the mastermind I'm in and the work I do with Coach April Garcia from Pivot Me. We work on mindset, productivity, time management, goals, high performance habits, all of it. She's helped me define a three-year vision for myself, and I'm doing more than ever while feeling happier and more fulfilled. And now you can experience it for yourself. April is doing a free virtual event, more of a workshop, where she teaches you how to get more done in less time. This is the same information she teaches to top performers, CEOs, COOs, and her own paying mastermind clients. But she is doing this for my listeners for free. This isn't some big webinar that's pre-recorded. April will work directly with you to get results on the call. This is one hell of an opportunity, and I wanted to make sure that you get on it. The event is October 25th and 26th. To join for free, go to www.pivot-me.com forward slash event and sign up to hold your spot. I'll put the link in the show notes too, but wanted to make sure I shared right away. Welcome to the Born Unbreakable podcast. I'm so excited about my guest today because it's actually really special, the connection of how we met. Absolutely. So Dr. Kimberly Osborne and I are in a group together called Ignite Your Inner Author or Author Accelerator because we're both on a journey to do something that's really intimate and new and exciting, but terrifying, (laughs) which is writing a book. And so we're in community with the most incredible, marvelous, engaging, brilliant people. Um, And we had the chance to connect. And I was so fascinated by her experience, her accomplishments and everything that she's done in her life that I knew having her on the show would be so much value to me personally, but also to anyone who's tuning in and wondering about your ability to pursue things you want to, and also just getting some courage to, to, to go out and do it. So let me say a few things about Dr. Osborne. Um, who's also a professional certified coach because yes. I, I'm a PCC, so we have yeah. that, that we have that in common. But 
for more than 25 years, she's been a trusted coach, a mentor. And I think one of the most impressive parts, uh, Kim, is your advisorship. So being an advisor to U.S. and foreign governments, multinational corporations, international NGOs, top tier universities, leading nonprofits, basically a global authority on leadership and communication. So, you know, your your experience is something I think we can all learn so much from. But one of the highlights in, in the many things that you've accomplished that stuck out to me was the time that you served as a chief strategic communication um, advisor in Kabul, Afghanistan, and at the end of Operation Enduring Freedom. Um, so I'm really curious to hear to hear about that. But, you know, I think anyone who's tuning in, whether you're in the United States or abroad, um, can appreciate the challenge that a role like Dr. Osborne played during a time that, you know, what was challenging internationally. And, and that's, that just says so much about who you are and what your capabilities are. So with all of that being said, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time to be here today. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very, excited. very excited. But, you know, before we get into the excitement of what you do and how you do it, I'd love to learn just your personal story. So tell us about you, how you grew up and maybe the journey to how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. That's uh, start at the beginning, right? Um, I, was, I was born and raised in Michigan, in Metro Detroit. And um, I had, I didn't know that my childhood journey was much different until I was a teenager. Um, I was born or I grew up in a like a working class family so um, my mom was a bill collector and um, my father was absent and we lived with my grandmother for most of my formative years a lot of my time was spent uh, with my best friend's family who had a very traditional kind of beaver cleaver family and and I really uh, enjoyed having the stability of her influence. They, you know, had the cabin up north and we used to play with stuffed animals in her basement and very creative kind of, you know, they all had their soap opera lives and um, and it was really wonderful to have that picture of what I thought family should be in the chaos of mine. So, um, one of the things that I learned along the way is you may not get what you think you need from the circumstances that you think you should, but very often you can find resources in other places. And Cindy's family was definitely that for me. And uh, when I was about 15, uh, my mom had been married to my stepfather for about three years by that time. And his child, his three boys were coming in and out of our two bedroom home with my two brothers. So being the only girl, they decided it would be better for me if I went to live with my grandmother. And so uh, I felt at the time like I was getting kicked out of the home. Um, but in retrospect, I do think it was the best choice for me. I had my own space and my grandmother was a wonderful person. So that was mm -hmm. great. And she ended up being a tremendous influence for my doctoral research later on as well. Um, 
So I can tell you more about that later. Um, but when I was 15, I found out that um, the man who I thought was my father wasn't actually my father. So that was a shock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I found yeah. out that my biological father was someone else. And when I asked my mom some questions, she said, oh, I think you should, you should meet him. And she arranged a meeting. And I thought he'd be like Cindy's dad. He was, you know, Cindy's dad was a PhD researcher for General Motors, which was then the Fortune One company in the world. And her mom was president of the PTA. And, and yeah, my dad showed up with a ponytail and a Harley Davidson. So it wasn't what I expected at all. And when um, we went out to dinner, he chose a place for us to get to know each other. He said, I hope you like it. And I said, well, I hope I like it too. He said, I've never been there before. And then when we showed up to the door, they greeted him by name. And it was a small thing, but I thought of all the things you could lie about, like that's not an important one. And when we were mm. sitting at the the two things I remember about that evening, we were sitting at the bar and, and I said, those people across the bar are looking at us. And he said, no, they probably think you're my young mistress. And I thought, you know, again, not necessary and not what I expect from my, you know, supposed to be esteemed researcher father who drives a Harley Davidson and has a ponytail. So at that point, I was, you know, 15. I said, I, I've done without you for this long. What I really wanted was a father. And so I think I can do without you for the rest of my life. And that was uh, true until I turned about 37. I think it was 37. And I had done a lot of self-development work by that time and realized that we're all connected. Everyone's connected. And if you have connections in your family, uh, you should try to mend those. And I, uh, I had t attended a seminar and my mother maintained contact with him. So I asked for his contact information and reached out to him. And, and I said, oh, I've learned a lot in these 20 years. I said, I've learned their wounds and gifts are two sides of the same coin. And you should try to heal relationships if you have them. And, and I'd like to have you in my life. I said, I also want to tell you that I love you. And it wasn't I said, you know, I, it's, it was the kind of human love that we can have for anyone. I said, I've done a lot of incredible things with my life. And if I didn't have my life, I wouldn't be able to do all these things. And I listed some of them. And I said, for all that, I want to thank you. And I wrote him a letter instead of calling him because, you know, who wants to get a phone call that says, hey, I'm your long lost daughter. Do you want to be my friend? And I... I sent it out at the end of January of 2009 and uh, he didn't respond in January. He didn't respond in February and in March, I was living in Georgia at the time working for the University of Georgia. And in March, I had an occasion to return to Michigan and I thought about going to knock on his door and say, you know, hey, why aren't you gonna answer my letter, <laughs> you jerk. <laughs> But I didn't, because I said, no, you gave him the prerogative. You have to honor that. And so um, I returned to Michigan on, I'm sorry, I returned to Georgia on March 12th. And then a week later, on March 18th, I got a phone call from the police from Michigan. And I thought, you know, did I get into an accident I didn't know about, run over somebody's cat, what happened? And they said, no, your father's dead. 
And I said, my father, my, my, why isn't my mother calling? My mother, you know, my father was my stepfather. And they said, no, it, it's not your father, Vic, it's your father, Bob. And I said, my father, Bob? I don't know my father, Bob. And they said, I know. His girlfriend gave us a letter that you wrote to him a couple of weeks ago. That's the way we found you. So he had never denied me. I was his child, and he, he just didn't want to be a father, and he had been very clear with my mother about that. My mother conceived me to try to trap him into marrying her. It didn't work, but here I am in the world. And so the police called, and they said, he's, he's at the morgue. Uh, you're his li only living relative and next of kin. He has no will. Uh, his mother died four months ago. Otherwise, she would have been his next of kin. They said, are you going to handle his affairs? So I was shocked, of course. And then I said, well, I wanted to get to know my father. So that's how I got to know him. I said, yes, I'll handle his affairs. I got to know him by going through all of his old t-shirts and old magazines and his house. He was a factory worker. He never really made a lot of money. So he had his, the main part of his estate was a small house in a suburb of Detroit and a Ford F-150 pickup. So I didn't get rich, but I got to know him. I attended his funeral. Um, his, and some incredible things happened on the way that made me realize that we're not alone in the world. Uh, one of his friends gave me some pictures that had been torn out of a photo album. You could see paper stuck to the back of them. And there were pictures of him on the boat partying and him with these, you know, with his big lamb chop sideburns and um, and the women with the bikinis. And then one picture of him having dinner with a woman. And I said, of all the women, you know, why did you choose this woman that he was eating dinner with? And he said, I don't know. That was just one of the women he dated back in the day. And I said, of all the women, that one's my mother. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then the the most poignant story from that period was his best friend came up to me at the funeral and he said, you need to know some things. He said, you need to know that your dad did love you. He just didn't know how to show it. And he was planning to call you. He said he received your letter. He has his eyesight was so bad from diabetes, he died from kidney failure related to diabetes. He said his eyesight was so bad that it took him two weeks to read your letter. He was too proud to ask anyone for help. And he did plan to call you. He said he called me and he said, what do I do? And this is his best friend talking. He said, you call her, that's what you do. So he said he did plan to call you. And the other thing he told me was, he said, you need to know that your dad paid for all of your education. So it's like easy to identify me with a lot of education, but I graduated with student debt. So I said, that's interesting. And I came home and I called my mom and I said, so this was my interesting day. I said, um, you never told me he paid for all of my education. And she said, Kim, he never gave us one red penny. So I had to reconcile that. And the only way that I could make yeah. sense of that was that my father was so proud of my accomplishments that he was willing to lie to his best friend to be part of them. 
so that oh honors him it honors me and i will never know the truth no one will now so yeah. that's the truth i choose to believe and, and that is um, an astonishing story yeah astonishing so i yeah there are what impact has Thanks, that has saying. that had on you i mean you've spent you mean you know you've spent this lifetime mm -hmm. of understanding your identity yeah and having shifts and turns of getting new information yeah to understand who you really are where you really came from mm -hmm. what what has that been like for you well i can certainly talk about what it's it has been a tremendous influence on me personally like there are are so many times that I'm like, oh, you know, I want to make up the story that that's that's a dad looking over me from heaven. You know, I had, I had talked to a clairvoyant. A friend said, go talk to this clairvoyant. Mm -hmm. And she said, the clairvoyant, this was shortly after my dad passed. And she said, has a man near you passed recently? And I said, well, my dad did, but I didn't really know him. We weren't really close. He wasn't close to me. And she said, yeah, he's got a message for you. I said, oh, okay, yeah, right. My dad's got a message from the great beyond. Go ahead, clairvoyant, tell me. And and she delivered the message that he loves me. Thank you for handling his affairs. He's sorry he missed out on my childhood. And I'm like, yeah, of course, because that's what dead fathers would say. Right, 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 right. And then she, <laughs> um, and she said, to note that these messages are from him. He wants you to know about the car crash and the rape. And so, yeah, I was like, well... I don't know about a car crash or a rape. And those sound like pretty serious things. So again, went home, called my mom and she said, yeah, that um, your dad crashed my brand new Corvette. Well, your, your drunk father crashed my brand new Corvette into a mountainside in Pennsylvania. So there was a car crash. And she said, and he had been accused by one of his friends of rape and was being held in the Detroit jail. This was in the 60s. And she said, I talked your grandmother into putting her house up for collateral to bail him out of jail because I wasn't going to let my boyfriend stay in jail. So there's the rape. I, she, I found out he was acquitted. So I said, oh, well, I'll, I'll choose to believe that he was not guilty. Uh, I don't know the mm -hmm. truth. And, and it was the 60s when the burden of proof was very hard on women in those instances and arguably still is. But I don't know the truth. So, um, the clairvoyant, her credibility was elevated in my mind. And a couple of years later, she told me, get your breast health assessed. I was diagnosed with stage one breast cancer at that time. And I wouldn't have done that test if not for the credibility of that story, if not for my message from my father. So when things serendipitous, things like that will happen and I'll be like, yeah. He's still looking out for me, even though he's not with me in this human form. So that it has influenced mm -hmm. me to give me some degree of confidence. You can see also it's given me a certain faith that things will work out. Uh, you know, I mentioned a couple times how I, you know, this is the truth I choose to believe. So to me, you know, in a, from a leadership perspective, I'm aware that stories are very powerful and they are one version of some instance that happened. They solidify a moment in time. So they often will keep us from, you know, becoming more depressed or, or 
thinking worse things, sometimes they also keep us from imagining what is actually possible. So Mm -hmm. I do use stories uh, a lot and I um, am aware that they're limiting in positive and negative ways. Mm-hmm. So, the, yeah, I think. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, you sh- you sharing your personal story is opening the door for others to embrace their own. You know, oftentimes it just like just like you said when you had the best friend, and you got to experience the whatever word is fitting, ideal life of uh, a father who was a researcher, a mom who was a PTA president, and almost like sisters, the way that you guys engaged together growing up. Absolutely. You know, Um, but we, there's, there is, I fully believe that there's beauty and imperfection and, and, in the uniqueness of our own individual stories. And you've chosen to, despite the unconventional nature (laughs) of, you know, maybe even how, how your parents met and how, how everything evolved and not having him consistently in your life. Yeah. And you know, you're making this effort to have him back in your life as you went through your own personal growth, but he's shown up in a different way now. And you've been able to use use the the pain as power to continue on your journey with your story, when and I, that's that's amazing. Thank you. There's uh, you've heard, I'm sure you've heard this in your coaching and um, interview work that so many people have mm-hmm. excuses and reasons why things can't be or why they can't do things, and um, mm-hmm. my experience has found that. Sometimes that's true. There are often good reasons. And sometimes we can find a different way if we just shift our mind. If we can tell a different story, Mm -hmm. uh, flip that narrative around or find a new possibility. And that opens up powerful new avenues that we didn't even realize were available to us. Mm -hmm. So having all of that as a backdrop, what inspired you to do what you do today? Um, Right now, I'm, I'm actually in between things. So um, I'm, I just left my position as the director of the Center for Leadership Development at the Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center, which is the US military's foreign language school. So I was one of the um, four top civilians in the agency and we had 2,000 faculty from 60 countries uh, across 16 sites worldwide, and 91% of them were non-native English speakers. It's great for teaching language and culture, mm-hmm. but it was the diversity was incredible. And um, my job was to help everybody to work together well in an American military environment. So that was also... Uh, a special layer of a cultural complexity. Um, So I did that for three and a half years. Um, 
and that now I'm writing the book, uh, starting a podcast of my own, and uh, looking for new opportunities. I, I think I mentioned I'm supposed to be in Europe right now doing traveling. My dog is sick, so I'm here with him mm -hmm. instead. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, the job that I had, this was my second time working with the Army. Um, my first time, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. was overseas in Afghanistan. And um, and then I also had a Fulbright in Myanmar, uh, working in the Ministry of Social Welfare, Relief and Resettlement. And I was an international consultant mm -hmm. to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Mission in Kosovo. Um, I've also been a Red Cross responder. I was one in the first wave of responders to Hurricane Harvey for the Red Cross. So mm -hmm. um, the thing that all of those jobs have in common is they are really the same kind of work you do, helping people um, often during their most challenging times to find new and better ways. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what will be next for me. Um, I'm uh, Tell your listeners, give me a call if you've got something great and you need someone who, who's uh, <laughs> be a tremendous contribution. I'm happy to entertain possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you certainly have no shortage of options. That's for sure. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm curious because I know that leadership and people connection through emotional intelligence is and amongst the specialties that you have, you know, what are, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned about leadership, especially through your international experiences? You, you I think you have a very broad perspective yeah. that is advantageous to maybe those who have only seen leadership in a, in a more domestic light. Sure. Um, one of the huge things I learned, uh, I don't, you can ask me how you want to talk about the Afghanistan job, but uh, when I was working with my primary mentee was uh, a colonel. And when I got there, my, my subordinate was advising an Afghan two-star general. And I said, how is this working? But I found out that the colonel was the one who actually knew what was going on. Um, we did an organizational analysis and changed some things around. But uh, when I was working with him, uh, he got promoted from colonel to general in the time I was working, the 11 months I was working as his advisor. And I did my advising in a non-traditional way. Uh, a lot of my army advisor counterparts came in and they would tell their mentees, you know, I know what's happening. Get in line behind me and just do what I tell you to do. And they would be able to claim they did something and get medals and awards for it. Uh, I wasn't getting that same kind of traction with being a female in the in Afghanistan and being a non-veteran working with the army, I didn't use the right language all of the time. I didn't use the same philosophy a lot of the time. I was trained as a scientist, social scientist. So um, we used to say when we were there, we're not there to imperialize or to colonize, but to help the Afghans run their own sovereign nation. And so as an educator, I took that to heart. And so I'd sit with General Habib and I'd say through my interpreter, this is what I think is going on in your organization. This is what I think is a problem. What do you think? And he'd tell me yes or no. Like one of the things I said, these, 
these committees that you have to make all these decisions. They're a bottleneck in your process. You don't need 13 people to tell you whether what you're doing is right. And he said, yes, we do. In this culture, we make things, we, we use shuras and we make decisions by committee. So that taught me, you know, it was culturally important to do things the way he was doing them in some cases. And so in the process of going through the plan that I had made, he said, you know, I understand, Dr. Osborne, why you're saying this is a problem. And here's what I think, I'd say, here's what I think we could do about it. And he'd say, yes, that will work. Or no, it won't. Like in the case of this decision-making by committee, he said, no, we need to have decision-making by committee. And so he was able to make take my ideas and make them culturally relevant and sustainable. I said, Sir, in order to get these ideas enacted, I'm not getting the traction back at headquarters that a lot of my colleagues are. You're going to have to stand in front of your own army and tell them these are your ideas and then tell them why you think they need to be enacted. And he did that. Like I said, he got promoted from colonel to general. And one of the big lessons that I learned was that it was amazing what you could get done when you didn't care who got the credit for it. So he was able to take the credit with my influence and his influence. The ideas were much, this is another lesson, the ideas were much stronger when the two of us were able to work together than either of us had been working in silos alone. So the, the whole was greater than the sum of its parts by far. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. That's so incredible. Do you miss doing work overseas? A thousand percent. Yeah. It was really hard to come home. It was, and, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll go back. Somehow, some way, there's, Mm -hmm. I feel a very strong calling. The richness Mm -hmm. of the, of the diversity and the cultural complexity is, is very alluring. It's, I, as you mentioned earlier, one of the things that I do really well is, is solve problems on the fly. You put me in some strange environment, I can figure out what's going on pretty quickly. And then um, my background is also in strategic communication. That was the work I was doing in Afghanistan as an advisor. And so Mm -hmm. I can very often figure out systems level problems and and then fig- figuring out how to do things differently in extremely complex multicultural environments is something I do really really well so it it mm-hmm. almost feels like uh, I have to do that well, so we'll see what happens but yeah it's a part of your DNA now yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah I, I- I think it's fascinating that you've had these opportunities to to do such important work, you know, domestically and abroad. And I I have to ask, what's the inspiration for you writing this book right now? What do you want people to get out of it? Um, I guess it's similar to the work that you do. I'd like them to see that that they have it in them to do incredible things. Um, 
you may, mm -hmm. as alluded to this earlier, you may not realize that you have opportunities that you do. You may not, you may not, you know, know that you have access to, to the power within. Um, you also, I also hope that the book is an inspiration. I, I know that my life has been hard sometimes because I've lived it. Uh, and yeah. yeah, and so I hope that people will take, take that to heart as well. Well, when they're listening, writing, or sorry, reading or listening to, to my book and realize that the, the hottest fires often forge the strongest steel or the hottest fires always forge the strongest steel it often it's the hottest fires so that was something I learned when I was going through my dad's stuff it's um, you're capable of more than you think you are yeah oh gosh isn't that the truth <laughs> yet we can be our own biggest enemy yeah. in the pursuit of our greatness mm -hmm. you know yeah I I can appreciate, you know, one of the areas that you've spent a lot of time in is in communication, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I see across almost everything that I do in every area, whether it's related to relationships or finance or wellness or, uh, you know, your social experiences, your soul work is is communication is so fundamental. You know, what are some of the things that you would say around communication that you've found to help people in a lot of the situations that you've come across? Huh. I I began my career doing Fortune 500 corporate public relations. So I worked for organizations like General Motors and Kelly Services, which was Fortune 300 when I worked for them at the global headquarters and mm -hmm. Symantec Corporation. I was mostly launching new products and business lines and many of them became record-setting bestsellers. Um, and one of the things, I did a lot of media, traditional media relations. And um, one of the th most powerful skills I developed doing that work was the ability to influence without authority. So when I was talking to editors and saying, you know, hey, you want to write a story about my new product or General Motors is having this corporate crisis. Do you want to know what's really going on? Um, I had to tell my story in a way that was important to them to make them want to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Of course, I had my interests. I was working for someone who was paying my paycheck and I had to either protect a corporate reputation or tell, try to get them to write stories about the new product so that new customers would buy it. But that's not the way that you approach someone who you're trying to influence. You always have to think about what can they gain from this and how can I serve them? And in order to mm -hmm. give them something that they can use, then um, they will help you. So learning that was a, also a really good leadership skill that I learned from doing media relations. 
how can I find ways that are mutually beneficial to help have mm-hmm. someone help me when I need them? So uh, one might say that, again, that's uh, looking for wins that are greater than than just a, you know, a fixed uh, zero-sum game, but to find ways to multiply the impact. And um, mm. in that way, I learned certainly influence. I learned a lot about human motivation. I learned about um, why people do what they do and and how to be an asset in someone else's life, to be a servant leader, uh, some people call it, or you know how to care about others more than I care about myself, yeah. or at least as much, or at least be able to benefit them in a way so that everybody wins. That was one of the big mm-hmm. things I learned from doing my communications work. That's incredible. And, and you know, the skill of listening yeah. is, is this art that I've, I've come to appreciate more and more and more. And I remember I went to the Telios Leadership Institute. That was where I, you know, studied more before I got my my P, my certification mm-hmm. um, from ICF oh, to okay. be a certified coach. And um, one of the books that was a part of our curriculum um, that one of the faculty members co you know co wrote was called Resonant Leadership. Mm-hmm. And I remember. Well, A, I appreciated in the book how there is a lot of adult learning, so mm-hmm. reflective exercises mm-hmm. that put you in a position of having to reflect and write yeah. and think, because I think it's an important part of adult yeah, behavior yeah. is you have to actually do it to feel it, to understand it, and absorb it. And I, I, I really got that sense of the importance that connection and listening is, I'm not saying it's a lost art form today, but I, I do think, and I don't know if it's an American thing. I'm, you know, I've interacted a lot internationally with you know, people of different cultures, but I do think Americans like to talk a lot um, and have a lot of opinions about things, yeah. but it's sometimes difficult to put yourself in the seat of just listening, listening to understand, listening to have compassion. And and even if it means you don't necessarily agree with everything that's being said, yeah. um, so you can find a common ground or you can make, you know, I think I do believe that people want to be seen yes, and heard. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you, you have to listen. And I, I feel like in um, much of what you've done in your work is is master that which I think is thank you we can learn from <laughs> yeah and yeah. I, in, I'm thinking of you know adult learning theories too that's uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned that is the area of my a doctorate is adult learning and there mm-hmm. is certainly the benefit of active listening and being able to be with another person and hear what they're saying without judgment without thinking of what I need to say next or what are they going to think about me but then there's also the practice of reflective practice what do you do with the learning when you are 
you know, when all of that is over, when the, you're apart from the other person or apart from your book mm -hmm. or whatever you're learning from and being able to contextualize and make sense of a learning in a reflective practice kind of way saying, now what does this mean for mm -hmm. me? Um, it's a, a fundamental part of, of andragogy, Malcolm Knowles idea about how adult learning is separate from pedagogy or what we traditionally think of the way children learn. And uh, mm -hmm. so being able to absorb that information, making space for it in a, in a, you know, respectful way, like you said, is when you're talking about communicate interpersonal communication is important. Mm -hmm. And it, it definitely is an art and it is definitely not practiced as much as I would like to see in America. And then what do you do with that new information and process it in a certain way is also a very special practice that I think is endemic in adult learning and uh, shouldn't be mm -hmm. taken for granted. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, what comes with that is this notion of reflection, mm -hmm. which I know I personally, I make excuses for being so busy and not having very much time. Right. That's why I don't do it as much as I'd like to, but I know that that process of, it's it's part of the processing, you know, when you're listening and trying to understand and make sense of things so you could be a better contributor and servant in the world. I do think that a process of reflection is, is helpful in that um, solidifying, you know, your, your thoughts, your feelings, your opinions, your perspective. Um, and it's, it's something that I, I don't think we spend as much time on as we should. It's is, true. Is reflect. I mean, in that, and that's why there's so much power in writing and in, in, in like journaling. Mm -hmm. Writing, right? journaling or writing your memoir. <laughs> or I'm, I'm also thinking mm -hmm. one of the skills that I often teach about in leadership is critical thinking. And that also comes out of my work in media literacy. That was the subject of my dissertation, how people learn from the media. Mm -hmm. There's the adult learning and the communication. So my, my dissertation was a critical qualitative study of the power relations and interests that shape television news, which is a very interesting wow. topic today. As people get more and more, yeah. we don't, you know, news is no longer who, what, when, where, why, and how, but uh, people yeah. often not the fact. No, it's content. Very it's true. a lot of you know people telling you what to think about things. So, my opinion yeah. is a lot of people today have not honed their critical thinking skills. And when we have mm -hmm. information overload, as we do in the world today, it takes a lot to be able to discern what is good and true and right. Back to the storytelling what is good and true and right mm -hmm. and what is good and true and right for me and my family and how do we make good choices in the world based on all of you know with all of this information out there how do we act in a way that is in alignment with our own values so that requires us to know our values and it requires us to be able to process the information not just interpersonally but that too and, you know, looking at all of our social media feeds and all of the talking heads and all of the friends' opinions from all of the social media feeds and all the talking heads 
and being able to say, mm-hmm. I appreciate that, you know, you think this is important, but it's not my truth. It's not my reality. And I'm going to make a different choice. Yeah. If we could have more of that, mm-hmm. I think we could have a more civilized dialogue in this country um, between mm-hmm. Republicans and Democrats, between climate change uh, beliefs, between there's so many so many issues right now between you know vaccination unvaccination mm-hmm. abortion or um or so, choice so right how do you have a dialogue with someone who's got opinions that are different than yours it seems to be a lost art mm-hmm. but it i think it yeah. all starts well, with you know Sorry, speaking of listening. Yeah, I mean, and certainly amongst our, our, our highest leaders, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and that, that is the example that people look to, you know, and, and I'm curious, what what's your position on, you know, being being that you've had, you have a lot of experience in communication, I, I struggle a little with, I mean, because you've got the media, mm-hmm. right? So that's television, newspapers, news feeds that are on your phone, lots of sources of information. Yeah. Um, it's kind of information overload in a way Mm -hmm. that you don't want to be ignorant and not read anything and be oblivious, but you don't want to overdo it. And then now just, you know, um, be overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. What, what is your personal operating system when it comes to the vast array of information out there? And the fact that now we have an emphasis on social media that, you know, maybe a decade ago, didn't exist the way it does today. You yeah, know, you, sure. you would still have to go pick up a physical paper, turn on the TV, and that was where you got information. But today, I mean, it's every single, you know, whether you're watching a, a TikTok video or mm-hmm. a Facebook feed or an Instagram or whatever other social media choices people are making, yeah. you know, how do you use <laughs> social media and What's your perspective on it? Yeah, it's a blessing and a curse. I, people have, I was a communications professor at Purdue University. I had an endowed chair there and I gave a lecture one time uh, in a, in a conference about climate actually, but we were talking about systems and intersections and, and polarity. And my talk was about social media and I said the blessing and the curse of social media is that it's everywhere. So you get to hear about things like, you know, the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street and the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. And these these social movements wouldn't happen without social media. We get to be in citizen journalism is, you know, bigger than ever. And you get to hear about things that you wouldn't normally hear about. So uh, that's great for those kinds of things. But it also means that everyone who has an opinion has an outlet for it. Everyone who wants to, there's a, I believe I heard recently, there's more than 2 million podcasts out in the world right now. So everyone who wants to have their own radio station can do that. Uh, So what makes, um, what makes something valuable? Again, that's back to the discernment. And um, and then you've got, you know, to help with that dis- help, and I don't mean that in a necessarily positive way, we've got these algorithms yeah. uh, that 
can help you to choose what uh, what you want to see among all of the choices. So uh, it will tell you what it thinks you want to see based on what you have already looked at. That's helpful, then you don't have to look through everything, but it's unhelpful in that it tends to become an echo chamber and you get more of what you yeah. already know and more of what you already believe. And then people start to think that their ideas are the only ideas. Back in the day when we used to read yeah. newspapers, you might run across an article on the other page that you weren't looking for that had an opinion that's different than the one that you were reading. So yes. pros and cons. Uh, the solution is not an easy one. I think the solution is to mm -hmm. seek out divergent views and divergent opinions. It takes up even more time and and it has to be a conscientious effort. So if we're just waiting for Google mm -hmm. to tell us the next thing, often we're reading our news feeds as we're lying in bed or sitting on the bus or, you know, in the middle of doing something else. We don't want to go out and say, you know, that's an interesting view, but I wonder what the other news channel has to say about that. Who does yeah. that? Normally that's not that's not the case. Right. <laughs> People are are wanting to almost, you know, find things that align with what, like you said, are already existing beliefs. Yeah. And algorithms play right into that. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can appreciate about algorithms is how many puppies I see because I'm a dog person. <laughs> but you know, I don't think that's unhealthy, but I think there's probably un other unhealthy things that, you know, come up to a little too much that you have to uh, have some caution around it and, and also yeah. just uh, be careful about how much time <laughs> you spend sure. on these places. Or, or the people who, you know, are consumed by their puppy videos or cat videos or whatever it is, and then, you know, don't get the news about international affairs and there's value in each of them. Um, yes. The impact of, of the international <laughs> affairs it might, is, might be a little bit greater than the impact of seeing someone's puppy videos. But we, but back yes. to the self-care, you yes. know, we also need time to just, you know, do something frivolous and spend some time relaxing with something that cheers us up and makes us happy if we're watching news about the Russian and invasion of Ukraine then all all day every day then exactly. and no puppy videos then we're going to go yeah. crazy <laughs> it's just going to we're just going to feel sad and maybe a little hopeless and i and i think that's that's the balance that we're all striking mm -hmm. but i do think and one of the themes that i've taken away from observing your work and something that i'm you know conscientiously building every day is the fulfillment that comes from contribution and serving and that just the mission of yeah, and you said it of helping others and what that looks like and i ultimately do think that in a world where there is a lot of chaos and confusion and things that maybe bring us down because there 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 are sad things and it's not to, to not acknowledge that the fact that there is a war in the in the world going on or that there is devastation you know from natural disasters and things of that nature i think we can control our ability to help in the ways that we can and it does matter and one person at a time 
is it, it does make a difference. Sure. You know, one person reading your book, one person listening to this podcast episode, one person going out to serve in the Red Cross. I mean, all of these things, if we think about the, the you know, and I, I want to stress this, you know, to anyone listening is that those one by one by one add up to a collective. And if we all did that, if we all did one thing today mm-hmm. and we multiply that across how many people are in this world, yeah, that's you. That's that's insane. It's revolutionary. The magnitude of that, Mm -hmm. and it is it is revolutionary, and that's that's how I choose to think to get over some of the challenge and some of the hopelessness that Mm -hmm. we see in the world, and that's why I like to have a space like this in in a podcast where we where we can appreciate the things we can do versus Mm -hmm. the things that we feel like we can't. One of my friends in Myanmar. we were talking after the military coup a couple of years ago, which was after my Fulbright in 2018. And he was, people were out in the streets protesting and he said, when's the U.S. going to come and save us? And I said, this is a, a domestic issue in Myanmar. The military coup was, the U.S. is not coming to save Myanmar. And, and he was like, well, what do we do? What? And I said, you know that business that you were talking about starting? Go go start your business. Go act like an independent business person and have the kind of life that you want. Don't have the expectation that the U.S. is going to come in and save you. Uh, go make mm-hmm. choice, like I was saying before, know your values and then go live your life in a, alignment with them. If we all did that, mm-hmm. then there would be a lot more uh, peace. There would be a lot more contribution in the world. Uh, there's. Mm-hmm. Did you hear the story about the starfish? I'm sure you have through your leadership training. The tide came in and oh yeah, and the starfish were on the beach and the guy was throwing them back and someone came along and said, "What are you doing? You know, you're not going to save all these starfish." And he picked up one of them and threw it back into the ocean and he said. I just saved that one. So yeah. we don't, we can't all be Martin Luther King Jr. style revolutionaries, although many of us uh, can, uh, but most of us won't. But we can make a difference to one. And if all of us made mm-hmm. a difference to one, that's a pretty big difference. Yeah, I I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. So I want to end with a few questions um, that'll just help people know you a little better, even though I know they've had a lot of wonderful things that they've learned from your story already. Um, So the title of my show is Born Unbreakable. So I believe that we have within us that ability to not break, despite, like in your story, a lot of things that, you know, you, you might think would. Um, so my, my my question to you is, what makes you unbreakable? That's a great question. Uh, I I don't I haven't really thought about it. It's, people the thing people ask me the most about having the work in Afghanistan they they say, weren't you scared? Mm-hmm. And I don't even know what that means. It was like I had a job to do. 
and scared yeah. wasn't even part of the equation. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from from John Wayne, and he said, uh, "You have to have fear to have courage, or or something like that. Or courage is having getting back up in the saddle when you have fear, or something like that." And so, um, mm -hmm. you you have to have these trials and challenges in order to to know what you're made of, to be able to have the opportunity to help others, to be able to, you know, how, do, how are you going to tell that story? How are you going to tell the story that, is it, you know, oh, poor me, or is it, you know, this is so awful and horrible, why does this always happen? I mean, it's part of the process, but don't dwell there. Yeah. What can you do with it? Yeah. So what makes me unbreakable? Absolutely. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's maybe that I hope to try to spend, you know, the time I need to, to acknowledge this really sucks sometimes. And then what are you going to do about it? Exactly. So get un to action. Yeah. Unbreakable is that next step. When you say, now I know more. Now I, you know, I know what it's like to be the person who, you know, whatever, my dad died or yeah. had a, the yeah. less than ideal childhood or, you know, I saw people who lost their homes in Hurricane Harvey and, and had absolutely nothing, not even food to eat. And, yeah. you know, I've seen people who've lost children in bombings. I've had friends killed. So what do you do with that? You know, you can have compassion. You can, you know, be a friend to somebody. You can give someone a piece of advice. Mm -hmm. You can sit with them when their dog yeah, is it's dying. Like, it's like it's like when when Maya Angelou says when you know better, you do better. A thousand percent. You know. Yeah, she's right. a wise woman. Yeah, I love that. Kim, what about a self-limiting belief? What's a self-limiting belief that you've had to overcome? Oh, it's, this book writing has been tremendous for uh, tackling those. I, I'm sure it was from the childhood that I had. Uh, I wanted to show the world that I was, you know, good and worthy. So I've cultivated, curated this incredible professional life and writing this book and being vulnerable has been an incredible education for me. Um, the self-limiting belief that I would be judged and, and seen less than I wanted to be seen and that others would say, you know, you're not good enough. You're not, you know, and whatever feel rejected has been a mm -hmm. huge fear that uh, that I realized that I was holding on to. So um, yeah. it doesn't have to I be that way. That. Mm -hmm. No, and I think I think a lot of people listening can relate to that for sure. 
What about a superpower? What's something that you're really good at that you're proud of? There's so much, you know, I'm choosing to tell that story. Um, what am I good at? I'm, I'm good at making chaos out of complexity, or sorry, complexity, making, getting clarity when there's chaos and complexity, with a lot of C's in there. Um, and yeah. I talked about that a little bit. Um, I really do enjoy working in that, in those high stress, high visibility environments. And, and I'm good at finding clarity there. And then the servant leadership. Well, someone's got to do it. <laughs> Call me. So I'm, glad, I'm glad you're doing that. <laughs> and then, you know, on top of that, how you do it is important too. When we're dealing with human beings, especially human beings who are very often having their worst day, it takes, you know, a certain skill to be able to, to solve the problem, but then to enact that solution in a, compassionate and humane and motivating way is also a special mm -hmm. skill. So um, the marriage of those two, I think, is something that I do really well. And it's part of my work that I, I can't see myself not doing. Um, I love it. Yeah. I think that's so amazing. Okay, what about a bucket list item? What is something that's on your bucket list? I'd like to fall in love again. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. I would like to go work overseas again. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'd like to that's finish, beautiful. I'd like to I finish this book. Both of our bucket lists. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, it is a journey, I tell you that. Mm -hmm. um, Kim, if there was one last piece of advice that you could give to anyone listening, what would that be? Well, I think the mission of your work, uh, you know, trust in yourself and, and live your values. Go make a difference. That's, it's such important work. Um, you know, I, I I think we've, we're almost out of time. And you know, when I got to Afghanistan, I'll make this very quick. When I got to Afghanistan, three days after I landed in country, my chief of staff said, the communication function in the Afghan army is broken and we want you to fix it. And I said, but sir, I don't know anything about the army. And he said, but you're a scientist, so go figure it out. So in addition to my regular day-to-day -day advising duties, I also had to do an organizational analysis for the Afghan National Army at the end of the longest NATO mission in history. That was where the plan came from that I referenced earlier. So um, my advice then is, you know, take the challenge, believe that it's possible and you can do it. You'll find the resources, you'll find, you know, the friends, family, you'll find the clairvoyant along the way, sometimes in the most unusual places. But um, it's yes. better to start than to, uh, than to sit there and want your certainty and believe that you, you know, can't know what's possible until you, it, to, then to, you know, want you to know. Sitting there for a very long time. Yeah. If that's the case. <laughs> waiting, waiting for your certainty before right. you even set out the door. Yeah. That's been, that has been a bane of my own existence. And I've learned that it doesn't have to be that way.
It doesn't, no, pretty much anything that's worth doing something about doesn't come with certainty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, just start. You have more power than you know you do. So just start. Yes. Our book coach keeps telling me the same thing. Yes. Just start. Jeez, oh. yeah. no. like a ringing, ringing thing in your in your mind that plays on repeat. Yeah. How can people find you? How can they follow the work you're doing and get to keep up with anything that you might be able to help them with? Uh, the best way is on my. I have a professional web page at uh, drkimosborne.com. That's uh, Osborne is O-S-B-O-R-N-E. There's contact information there. I'm also on Facebook, LinkedIn, and uh, Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Kim Osborne. Um, so those are all good Makes ways. Sense. Yeah. And there's a there's a mailing list yeah. there to get find out more information on my webpage. There's a mailing list at the bottom to get information about the book and mm-hmm. then also email contact information as well. Good. I will make sure that all that information is in the show notes so people can check out the show notes of the episode and find you easily. But I am so grateful for your time today. And I just thank you for sharing your, your wisdom, your vulnerability. It has meant so much to me. And I know I learned a lot from our conversation. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I, I really, yeah, really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Des, and keep doing this good work. It's so important. Thank you. It is a little noisy here, so apologies for the background noise. Of course, when I'm recording, there's lawnmowers going out on outside, dogs barking, everything else. It's a good time. I learned so much from Dr. Osborne. What an incredible human being. She's done so many magnificent things across the world in leadership, communication, strategy, emotional intelligence, the list goes on. But what I found most profound outside of her accolades, which are very impressive, is her vulnerability to share her story. And I would love for the reflection for you today to be on your story and your ability to embrace it, every single part of it, your upbringing, the ups, the downs, the emotions, the people, and how it's impacted you, how it's affected you, your childhood, your teenage years, shifting into adulthood. Uh, You know, it is a vulnerable thing to think about how we got to where we are, but our stories make us such, right? We all have a history that has influenced us and people in our lives that have influenced us. And there's so much beauty in that, even through the most challenging things and things that have, maybe you're still working on accepting them right now, different elements of your history but our identity and our origin is not anything to be ashamed of. It's something to be proud of because it continues to be a part of your foundation. Now, I will say, because I'm a person 
who coaches on self-limiting beliefs is that we also can't let our identity, our history, our past dictate what we can and can't do. So while we embrace who we are, we also don't allow what we've experienced limit us into the future and the dreams that we have. So I want to make it very clear that that is important, uh, is, is not to use our history, our past, our identity as an excuse for why we can't do something today because we absolutely have the ability to. And I think Dr. Osborne is evidence of that, despite everything that she had experienced and gone through, she went on to make big decisions and take big roles and continues to do so. Um, the sounds are abundant around me. It's just excessive. So I'm going to land this episode before some other crazy sounds start going on. But I just leave you with that reflection. Embrace your story. Thanks for tuning in today to the Born Unbreakable podcast. Subscribe, follow. Remember, you are your only limit. So take action today. And I will see you next time on the next episode.